from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis, and today I'm very excited to host my old boss and mentor, former Senator Chris Dodd. Joining us today to share his views on the 2020 election, a 50-50 Senate, and the challenges and opportunities awaiting President-elect Biden. Senator Dodd, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. I'm delighted to be on the show with you. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Um, first, just quickly tell us a little bit about what, what you're doing now since you've left the Senate. Well, I, I for when I left the Senate, uh, very directly, I was asked to join as the chief executive officer and chairman of the board of the Motion Picture Association, which I did for seven years and uh, enjoyed immensely working with the, the top studios, uh, the large studios, then the largest six studios. Now there's been mergers and all sorts of changes right. along the way. Uh, did that for seven years. And then I uh, joined the law firm of Arnold and Porter as a senior counsel. Uh, for the last three years, which has been interesting as well. And in the midst of all of that, um, in addition to helping my good friend Joe Biden uh, become uh, the nominee of our party, and then to a lesser extent, the president, because obviously a campaign staff, everything was virtual uh, for him, but still uh, we talk occasionally and and we had a great 40-year friendship. And and, uh, it'll be different now, obviously, as the president-elect, as we speak, 24, 48 hours before inauguration. Uh, I've also been involved in in an endowment fund. 25 years ago, I started a human rights institute at the University of Connecticut in memory of my father, who was a prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials, 1945 and 46. And I donated his papers uh, to the University of Connecticut and thus began a project to talk about human rights, both domestically and internationally. So that's taking up some time too, because we're rededicating that effort. And I've been in the middle of that. So um, I'm still busy. and um, Sounds like it. Yeah, and enjoying being busy, too. Good, good. Well, let's start with uh, President-elect Biden's inauguration. You've been involved in a number of inaugurations as a, mm-hmm. as a senator, but also as the, the Rules Committee chairman for a few years. Um, this is coming, unfortunately, after one of the darkest moments in American history, in my opinion, the, the storming of the U.S. Capitol uh, during the Electoral College certification. Having spent so much time up there and being involved in that process so intimately, what was going through your mind that day as you watched those events on television? Well, I was, um, well, the word shocked gets used a lot. And I, there may be a better synonym for it, but certainly shocked. I would quickly, I was not surprised. I regret to tell you that. Yeah. Whether you were anticipating a storming of the Capitol or not, I think all of us, recognized with this presidency, there were no outer limits, apparently. We thought there were to begin with, and then we kept on discovering there was no, there was always a new surprise each day of what, 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 what lengths President Trump would go uh, to test the democratic values, institutions of our country. I was also very saddened. I, I, um, I spent 36 years in that building, six years in the House, right. 30 years in the Senate, my father spent four years in the House, 12 years in the Senate. So collectively, between father and son, over half a century of work in both chambers of that building. So I know the building intimately. 
Uh, I went up today to get tested before the inaugural. And, um, and that even though I had a face mask on, I'm, I was teasing my daughters. I said, they still remember after 10 years that I was here. A lot of Capitol Hill police, many of whom put their lives in the line a week or more ago, uh, were, were, were uh, uh, warm, uh, greeting me warmly, which was nice. I got to tell you, yeah. on a human scale to go back to a place you really haven't been around much for 10 years and walk back in the building and uh, have people welcome you back. And as I did, I stopped with each one that I saw and hope they were okay and, and respected what they had been through and appreciated the efforts many of them made uh, to try and deal with, with an assault uh, with very dangerous people. So I know there'll be complaints about the preparations ahead of time, but what they went through, it was not the average officer's fault that they were left unprotected as they were with 35,000 people at the instruction of the president marching on the Capitol. So those are my thoughts. Shock, not surprise. And right. right. President-elect Biden had an enormous task yeah. before those events. Um, and as you say, after a presidency that seemed to, to push the limits to, to bounds we never thought of and to right. respect no norms, how, how do you, or maybe you're talking to him or you know, if you could talk to your friend, Joe Biden, what advice would you give him? How does he heal the country? And, and he may not do it in one speech, it may take him four years, but how does he try to bring us back to some civility here? Well, I think he's already doing it, Brian. I've been, I've been very impressed. Uh, how, put aside the staff for a minute and the, and the team he's putting together, mm-hmm. which I also think they're doing a very good job on. But, but I have been very impressed about how Joe's voice uh, the timber of his voice, the tone of his voice, as he has announced various messages, including messages about the current conditions and about what happened 10 days ago, uh, or now going on almost two weeks ago. Right. And, and um, th- there's such political maturity in his voice, in my view. There's a calmness. Um, and, and we might also fault him if there were not. I mean, this is a pretty, right. you know, this is dramatic. As you said, I can't think, you got to go back to the 1860s. <laughs> Uh, to imagine a president walking into a situation where a civil war was breaking out in the country. And right. a sense of political one is here. Nothing quite as dangerous as the one there, obviously. But nonetheless, I, I've been very impressed with how his tone and timber, his confidence, his calmness uh, have come across. And you're absolutely right. This is not a question of one speech uh, or, or one announcement. Um, I think restoring people's confidence in the office, first of all, uh, right. restoring confidence in the people around him where he won't have this merry-go-round and revolving door of literally hundreds of people who came and went in four years, who Donald Trump would lose favor. They would lose favor with Donald Trump and be gone. There'll be a consistency to all of this. And I think back to what we might call, and you'll remember these words, the regular order. Right. <laughs> the use around sure do. For your audience, I'll explain. It's basically... Going back to, there's a process to democracy to make it work right. And there are rules. And they're rather loose rules. It allows a lot of freedom in how to operate and what you want to say and how you want to conduct yourself. But, but, but there is, it isn't just chaos, <laughs> democracy. Right, right. There's a system to it. And it's called the regular order. And, and, and uh, a lot to those words. Um, and, and, and Joe understands the importance of it. When you think of it, we've never really ever had a person as well prepared for this moment as Joe Biden is. Um, uh, there have been presidents who have been great generals and presidents who have had other experiences. 
but, but nothing really ex prepares you for walking behind that desk. The distance between standing in front of that desk and behind that desk is light years uh, in many ways. But Joe, when you think of it, uh, 36 years in the Congress, in the Senate, uh, chaired the Judiciary Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee, right. knows the Congress really well, knows foreign policy, and knows the third branch, the judicial branch well. Then eight years as vice president, where he learned the executive branch. We don't have anyone in our history that's ever held those kind of jobs <laughs> that has come into the presidency at a moment like this. So. That's no true. one, not even he, is well prepared for this in many ways, and he'd be the first to say that. But in many ways, he is the best prepared. <laughs> right. Someone walking in. Yeah. So I, I think he's got the right, the right tone to this. I think he's got the right discipline and the right energy to it. And, and I'm very optimistic about what he'll do over a period of time, because I think this is not a, a, a one-shot deal where you come and, as I said, make a speech or pass a bill. Right. Right. And I think. Um... I think Biden views it that way. I think Biden will take that long view. Um, though I do want to ask you, his, his first week, he'll, he'll inherit a global pandemic that's right. still killing thousands a day. And um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, he'll, he'll step into an office with a Senate that's got articles of impeachment that it has to deal with. Um, and a Republican a minority party granted, but a, but a Republican party in the House where nearly 140 members didn't support certification of his election and then didn't support impeachment. Um, how does he make, how does he bridge that divide with the, with the Republican party, especially on the House side? Well, it, it, it's, it's called juggling. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and and um, I'll, just as an aside, Tell you, there was, a, I'll leave the names out, but someone once said to me, if you took the all-star team of, of White House staffs uh, going back two centuries and, you know, and, and pick the 20 best White House staff people that ever, Democratic or Republican administrations going back in time. Yeah. And if you give them three balls to juggle, they'll do very well. <clears throat> you throw a fourth ball, this individual said to me, and and you have to lose all four. Uh, right. And even the White House, as talented as a team may be, there's only so much that human beings can do uh, at the same time. Right. So I think Joe, and I don't know this now at all, Brian, so I'll leave that uh, up to them to answer your question ultimately. But my guess is he's going to let the impeachment process run its course. That's a matter for the Congress. It's not a White House job uh, to do that. And right. so that's what Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, they have that responsibility. Uh, it's not that he won't be interested in the outcome and what happens, but, but that's one of those balls I would take out of the, the four uh, to begin with. He, he may agree, he may disagree, he may have all sorts of things like he understands the seriousness of the allegations uh, that have been raised, uh, and there's nothing more serious than posing a threat by, by storming the Capitol building of the United States. Right. Right. Um, so it's not a question of whether or not there ought to be some penalty for those who engaged in it and those who incited it. But it really is a congressional responsibility at this point, may become more of a presidential one later on. Joe is going to take on the pandemic. He has said for months, there's nothing more important than getting the country healthy. You can't even talk about the economy, either domestically or globally. And, and so I think Joe is going to want to make sure we do everything possible to get these vaccines out 
we worry about the variants coming online they may be more contagious. So that is item number one. Now in a touch of that, obviously getting the economy moving as you're doing that. It's not waiting for right. one and then doing the other. You have to have some simultaneity uh, to those efforts of the pandemic and the economy. And then in the middle of that, the third ball would be, if you want, is then the initiatives. How do we get the country back on track with healthcare, with infrastructure, uh, with immigration policy and so forth? And that's not a batting order I just mentioned, but those are some of the major issues that'll have to be grappled with. And again, I would suspect that they'll concentrate on those while dealing with the pandemic and the overall economic growth, the stimulus package and so forth to get some real help to real people who are suffering out there today. So that's what I imagine will be sort of the order of the day. Great, great. Well, let's take a break there. I wanna come back in a minute and I wanna talk about how he does all that with a 50-50 Senate, something yeah. you've uh, worked in and, and lived through, but certainly not an easy task. So. We'll take a break. We're talking to Senator Chris Dodd, and we'll be back on HPS Insights in just a minute. Every Friday, Hamilton Place Strategies founding partner Tony Fratto joins John Fagan and Brendan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners for the HPS Macrocast, an in-depth look at the macroeconomic news driving the week. Check out the latest episode at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. We're back on HPS Insights. My guest today is former United States Senator Chris Dodd. And we just talked about uh, President-elect Biden in the first segment. And now I want to talk about what you know all too well is is the makeup of the United States Senate and and what uh, Vice President Biden will be, President-elect, excuse me, Biden will be working with. So later this week, right around the same time of the inauguration, the two new Georgia senators will be sworn in. Once that takes place with the inauguration, Democrats get control of the Senate with Vice President Harris uh, as the tie-breaking vote. You served in a 50-50 Senate, I believe, in in 2001. Tell us how that worked. And I believe that was Lott and Daschle. Do you see Schumer and McConnell being able to have a similar relationship with power sharing? Well, maybe maybe your, your audience would be interested in a little history uh, Jim Jeffers was the one who switched parties and became a Democrat, and by doing so, um, created the 50-50 Senate. Uh, I was this colleague he called to tell me he was ready to switch. I immediately right. called Tom Daschle, and right. was clearly the majority leader, the minority leader at that point that had to take over the responsibility. A lot of respect for Jim Jeffers. He, he, he knew that by switching, it wasn't just leaving one party for the next, as Dick Shelby and others had done historically. Uh, but he was changing the control of the institution. So it was right. a major decision. And a highly regarded senator, Jim Jeffords, was very thoughtful, That's right. very, a, a moderate Republican, but, but, but a conservative moderate Republican in many ways. Anyway, uh, Tom Daschle and Trent Lott did well. Um, it, it, was a, it, was, it was not that long ago uh, when that happened, but it, but it seems light years ago in terms of how the Senate has been functioning. Um, in those days, you had uh, two leaders who were very institutional leaders. And that's, that almost sounds right. today like a, like a pejorative. Uh, when I say, right. uh, you know, but back I mean, then it wasn't, right? Oh, God, you know, in fact, right. it's true, unfortunately. It shouldn't be today. Yeah, yeah. That working together was a time when working together, you were applauded for that. You, you right. were rewarded for that by your constituency and by others. Today is exactly the opposite. Uh, 
there's little or no political reward for working something out, getting something done, making the institution function. Uh, and, 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 and one of the reasons, and I'm not in any way suggesting that that would be reason enough for what occurred almost two weeks ago in the Capitol, but there are an awful lot of people who wouldn't you know, storm the Capitol who feel that same frustration by wondering if we'll ever get back to the point of worrying about them uh, right. Uh, right. and working on their problems. And so we were lucky to have Trent Lott and Tom Daschle um, to be able to navigate those waters. Uh, and as I resem- remember, it, uh, Brian, it was sort of seamless. I, I, I don't, I'm trying to recall, I should go back and look if there were any you know, major breaches or blowups that would hurt like that, but I don't recall any. Uh, committees functioned. There was a right. one vote majority on the committees, as I recall. Um, and, and obviously there's a big deal, not so much because of the, of the votes, which is obviously a big deal, but, but, but in the, the setting the agenda, uh, that, that, that vice president, in this case, Kamal Harris, sitting in that chair, says that every, every ranking Democrat becomes the chairperson of committees, and they set the agenda. They determine what bills get, get voted on, what hearings happen. So it, is, it means a big difference. Now, my guess is that on, on the committees, let's start at the committee level. The committee level, by and large, I think you'll find a lot of cooperation. You just have to. If you become the chairman after waiting 15 or 20 years, you know most of the members really well, including right. the Democrats and Republicans. You know what their interests are. You know what they care about. So when I look at, at committees, Sherrod Brown will be chairman of the banking committee. Uh, I, I'm not sure who will now be the ranking Republican on the committee. Uh, but if it's Mike Crapo, for instance, I don't know who it will be, they'll have a working relationship. I, I had a great working relationship. Even with Richard Shelby, who I disagreed with on substance a lot, we had a very good working relationship. You did. Always kept each other informed. So I, I think on the, on the committee level, overall, I think it'll work pretty well. The question is... Can I ask you about Brown? I, I remember yeah. Brown on your committee yeah. um, being very respectful of the institution. Respectful yeah. of his chairman, respectful yeah. of the seniority. And in fact, um, of course, you know this, but for our listeners, I believe Brown was both on your help committee when you took over right. for Ted Kennedy and um, your banking committee. And if you can see over my shoulder, I've got yeah. the ACA there and Dodd-Frank. Uh, um, and you worked with them on that. A lot of people also look at him as a progressive. He's going to come in and he's going to try to do a lot, but I think he's going to try to move progressive goals through the Senate in a way that respects the the institution of the Senate. And I'm curious your thoughts there. No, first of all, he's a good friend and um, he's smart as hell. um, Very bright. Um, And, and, and Sherrod as the committee chairs understands it isn't enough just to have goals. (laughs) You want to get things done. I mean, what are you there for? Uh, and, And so you know, where he is, where I was on a lot of these issues, on the two bills you're talking about behind. If I were king for a day, what I would have done would be different. Uh, but if you're a legislator and a chair of a committee, you don't have that luxury if you want to get anything done. Now, right. you know, that, that old line when I was told years ago by a senior member of the Senate, you know, when you come to the Senate, you have two choices. You can make noise or make a difference. Um, and, and, and so, right. you know, there are those who make noise. Now, there's, a, there's actually a role for that. I don't, I don't say that everyone has to be a legislator. 
I, I, I prefer that most of them were, but, but every now and then you need those who push the level of the envelope and constantly challenge you. Yep. So there's a value for, the, for the, that, that, that annoyance uh, of wondering why we can't do more. But in the same token, you need someone who knows how to package something to get something done. Going back to right. what I said a minute ago, there are people out there you know, they couldn't get a home mortgage. They were being bankrupt, losing their jobs and so forth. And they were sitting there going, what about me in this process? So I think Sherrod will be very, very good. He is a, he's a strong progressive. He's bright. He knows what he's doing. And he will, he will try and, and get as far as you can get, but at the same time recognizing I can't do this alone. I'm in a collaborative institution. And it, right. it isn't just about what I want. <laughs> it's what the institution, what the tipping points are. And so I have great confidence he will do that. A Ron Wyden, I think, will do that in finance. I can have a list of people I think will, um, people I know and respect. Jack Reed will do that in armed services. Uh, right. Chuck Schumer will be that way. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm more optimistic at that level. A big issue is one you've raised, and that is, uh, what, what does Mitch McConnell do with, with, with Chuck uh, uh, Schumer uh, and, and, and leadership? And, and Chuck Schumer, let me just mention Mitch McConnell. And, and I know this is anathema to some people, but, but I made it my business to get along with my colleagues for the 30 years they spent there. Does that mean I agreed with them? Of course not. Uh, right. Uh, in fact, I used to have a good personal relationship with a number of them where we'd share meals together. I remember that. I don't think yeah. I ever voted with them on anything. But, but I, right. on a personal level, we shared things in common that we liked and, and we could have dinner, we could have lunch and so forth. Um, Mitch, Mitch McConnell is a very good politician. Now, I know people are justifiably angry at what he did. In my view, with Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court, right, uh, right what he exactly. did uh, by eliminating the filibuster on Supreme Court nominations and down the road. But Mitch McConnell, whether people like it or not, is a very smart politician. He does not get way out in front of his conference. He's maybe a foot outside occasionally, six inches to a foot, never further. And he's right. never behind them. <laughs> so he's very much always knows exactly where the tipping points are within his conference. And that's how he maintained his leadership status with them over the years, longer than anyone else in the Republican Party. So he will very much be reading what his conference was. Now, he's got some wild ones in his conference who are the noisemakers, not legislators. But he's got a lot of them who are legislators, in my view, who I think don't want their career in the Senate uh, to be framed uh, by basically the Donald Trump years or the Tea Party years. And that's what it'll come down to. At their end of their service, they got to look back and they'll be asking the question, what did I do here? What did I achieve? What did I accomplish? What am I going to tell my children or grandchildren about what my contribution to this country was? Uh, and I think a, a significant number of them are going to want to answer the question positively. Now, that doesn't mean that Mitch McConnell is going to lay down and endorse everything Joe Biden does. But I think on several issues, based on what I've seen in the past, Mitch McConnell's first of all got to be delighted to be able to deal with a president he respects and knows, and is not. Uh, right, uh, Biden was a bit of a McConnell whisperer for Obama. You no, know, he was. In fact, he worked with him on various good packages. relationship there. Good yeah. relationship. Uh, could keep his word. Could tell him honestly where things were, and and Mitch McConnell will be in touch with his conference and what what it can tolerate. But, but I've got to imagine an awful lot of Republicans are looking around and saying, if we allow ourselves to become the Trump party, because we're just going to be a, 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 just a carry on operation of what Donald Trump wanted, then I think they'll have an awful time in 22 and an almost impossible time in 24. Right. Uh, 
and elections, and just on a purely political basis, they need to jettison Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, they need to tear that, that scab off <laughs> uh, right. or it'll grow <laughs> and it'll become such an albatross around their neck politically. They may take years uh, to, to, run, to get themselves separated out. Now, I know there'll be a lot of opposition. Uh, 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. But, but I think Republicans who still embrace that approach to governance, that approach to lack of confidence in institutions uh, that denigrate the, the, the offices of the Senate and the House and the presidency, uh, I think do great risk to the country, but they'll right. also do great risk to their party and individually as well. Yeah, McConnell seems to be heading that, that way. I won't, I won't make you answer too much on it, um, but you know, he seemed to open the door for his caucus to convict on impeachment, which I thought was just an interesting tell. As you said, McConnell usually leads. Yeah. And he's six inches in front of the caucus, leading him in the direction. This felt more like, you know what, I'm going to open the door and sort of like Liz Cheney, you know, vote your conscience. You guys well, decide. This you, Ryan, and of course, I said how good a politician he is. <clears throat> Donald Trump is a far bigger problem for Republicans than he is for Democrats. Right. And, That's and, right. and if Donald Trump is hanging around, threatening to run again, <laughs> and hanging over and watching how every member of Congress votes, and whether or not he approves or disapproves of it, uh, Mitch McConnell is going to have a dreadful time. Right. So I suspect right. that Mitch has looked around and said, you know, uh, it wouldn't be the worst outcome. It was the Democrats who impeached him. It's the Democrats who provided the overwhelming majority of votes in the Senate to convict him. Right. Yes, some of my Republicans voted for that. I regret that happened, uh, but it wasn't my fault. It was the Democrats who did it. And come two weeks or three weeks from now, Donald Trump can never run again for public office. He yeah. can be a fly in the ointment, to put it mildly. Sure. But who's better off politically with that outcome? Uh, uh, right. The country is certainly. Mitch McConnell is not the worst outcome for him. Um, let me switch gears a little bit. You, you mentioned the filibuster a minute ago, and there uh, is... Um, there's been a lot of talk for years. There, there was talk. I, I remember doing interviews with you in your final months talking about the filibuster. Um, your final speech laid out support for the way the institution works. But there's a lot of pent up demand to change the filibuster. I think a lot of impatient Democrats, and I don't mean that as a negative, but they want to see change and they want Schumer very quickly to eliminate the filibuster. Do you, do you think that'll happen in the early months here? Well, there's a danger of it because, um, uh, you know, you're, under the rules, it takes 67 votes uh, to change uh, a rule of the Senate uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, it, if, you, if 51 people can change the rules of the Senate, th then you could, <laughs> you could do that on a weekly basis, uh, potentially. And I don't think most, I hope most members don't feel that that's a healthy outcome uh, right. at all. Uh, but, but we saw what happened already on district court and appellate court judges uh, that the Democrats uh, authored and, and did it with a simple majority vote. Uh, yep. There was the ruling by the chair that the motion to change the rules had failed. And then uh, a senator said, I appeal, appeal the ruling of the chair. When you appeal the ruling of a chair, even on a matter requiring 67 votes, it only requires 51 votes to overrule the chair. I see. Uh, so we have set the precedent now of changing the rules of the Senate with 51 votes. 
If we start doing that, then you've got chaos, uh, in my view. Once that precedent has been breached, um, Carl Levin, my former colleague from Michigan, was, was ap apoplectic about the idea that 51 votes could change Senate rules. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen there. Certainly there's room for reform of the filibuster. It's not as if we ought to keep the same filibuster we had before. But the Senate is unique. What the founders had in mind was not to create a unicameral system in two chambers. Uh, there's a vast difference on the obligations of the Senate and the House and how they do business and what the founders had in mind as they created a republic, a republic. Right, right. And so I have no objection whatsoever. But the, the Senate, it isn't so much that the filibuster is bad. What made it worse is there's no cost for those who engage in a filibuster. Right. Uh, the, the cost is to the institution and to people who are counting on the Senate being more thoughtful about its, its, its judgments uh, legislatively. So what happened in 1975, and I'll be quick on this, in 1975, the rules changed and they went from three-fifths to two-thirds the vote, the 67 votes. But they didn't carry forward a simple sentence in that rule change. And that was present and voting. So, right. it stands, so now you can go home because yeah. until all senators come in to vote, the filibuster stays in place. So you, you can largely be anonymous, right? I mean, unless yeah. the media figures it out, you, yeah. don't, you don't have to you stand down there. You don't have to make your case. You can spend two or three days there. You can go off on a vacation if you want. Uh, a few people hang around, but there's no price, really. Right. Back to president voting, you'd have to stay there at night, all night, because right. only a handful of senators, 10 of them, uh, could stand up and six of them uh, could vote to, to eliminate the filibuster. That's present and voting. Right. <laughs> How right. many senators want to sleep for the next two weeks uh, in the chamber and have to be there <laughs> right. around the clock? You know? How serious is your filibuster? If it's about the civil rights of our country, you may be willing to do it. But are you going to do it on every federal judge that comes up, on every motion to you know, declare uh, Mother's Day a, uh, a different day? I mean, you really right. you see the frequency of abuse of this thing that has driven the membership crazy. Make, yeah. it, make it painful to filibuster because then you'll get more serious about the matters that deserve it and, yeah. and not to be used basically on a daily, hourly basis. As the Republicans, you did. think Schumer will do that? You think we'll see? Some I think there are variations of that, but that's one yeah. quick fix. Ought to try it. Yeah. Uh, you wonder why they had few filibusters before? It wasn't because they were nice people and loved each other and didn't have you know right. deeply felt views on things. It's because it was painful. The old story of George Mitchell, you know, when he would we used to sleep on cots in one of the rooms near the, the floor of the Senate. And, and, uh, and George Mitchell was asked about it back home in a Maine newspaper. How bad did he feel having to sleep on a cot? He said, I felt terrible. He said, until I looked over at my cot mate. And there was John Warner of Virginia, who had just married Elizabeth Taylor. He was sleeping <laughs> on a cot. He said, I felt very bad for John Warner. <laughs> <laughs> a little humor here. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, we've got a few minutes left. I want to I wanna go back to the banking committee hat for a second. Um, Dodd-Frank, you know, I think a lot of people agree uh, it helped strengthen. I mean, you've heard the CEOs say that. I think some of the response this year was a credit to Dodd-Frank. Um, 
but there have been efforts to change it. Crapo successfully changed it a few years ago. Do you see a lot of attempt to, to tweak Dodd-Frank or make any changes in the new Congress? I, I don't think so, at least in any major way. And even the Crapo amendment, you know, it had bipartisan support. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a bipartisan amendment. Um, this what I, I, I would have voted against it, I said, because they lowered or they raised the threshold for heightened supervision of banks. The irony was uh, the, the rate we set in the original bill I only said to satisfy my Republican colleagues who kept on wanting a lower number. Uh, right. I brought it down to 50 billion. They're only about, they're only about, I think there are 6,000 banks. I think there were like a hundred banks that had uh, assets, combined assets of something like 50 billion. Um, but they moved it up to 200 billion. Uh, and then there are only, I think there are like eight banks out of 6,000 uh, that would require heightened supervision. But the Federal Reserve still has jurisdiction over banking and they can keep an eye. And, and Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has said to me personally that he will watch it very carefully and will have no hesitation of imposing heightened supervision. Um, so it was a bad amendment, in my view, for that reason. But, but, but it didn't do, you know, it wasn't core damage a ton uh, to, the, to the underlying bill. So I don't think so. And you're right, Brian. I mean, aside whatever I might say, um, the fact that banks were able to lend because of the capital right. standards, the liquidity, Without that in place, I'm told uh, by people in the banking business, last spring when this crisis first hit uh, and banks were called upon to lend money, had they not been for Dodd-Frank, they would have not been in any even remotely close position to play the positive role they did. And I'm delighted to say that on their behalf, by the way. I mean, the banks have a legitimate complaint that they're all of them are crooks and corrupt and everything. They're not. That's a stupid statement to make uh, here. I think they right. made some huge bad mistakes. They're not unique uh, in being a business that got out of control, in my view. B- but they played a very important role in the midst of this pandemic, and they deserve credit for doing so. And it's a, a, a rare, a rare event in Washington when someone admits maybe they were wrong. And I got to tell you that when I watched them make their statements before committees, that Dodd Frank actually worked. Uh, that's not an easy thing for a CEO of a bank who fought tooth and nail against the bill to turn around and say, I, I'm relooking it now and a lot of what they've written here actually contributes to the health of our financial services sector. There's no other banking system in the world that is as profitable and as safe and as sound as the US banking system today. Uh, and we take credit for that. Now, there are always things in a bill of that size that you can change. It is now 11 right. years ago and a lot has happened. There's a lot more technology today that could be consumer friendly in terms of people doing their business. So the last person, we didn't write the Constitution of the United States. We wrote a bill uh, right. to respond largely to what was occurring at the time. And there's nothing more foolish than to have an old member hope that your bill never gets changed. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to fall into that trap. Uh, if they've got some good ideas on how to make, make it better, have at it. And call right. me and I'll support you. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me leave with this. Um, Confirmation hearings are starting this week. That that's a role you you had a big role in, obviously as as a chairman. Um, what do you think about Biden's team? That he's a his economic team in particular. I think you've worked with Janet Yellen, and yep. you, you've worked with Governor Raimondo, and I think you know uh, Mayor Walsh out of my home state of Massachusetts. Tony Blinken, John Kerry. What do you think of the team he's he's assembling? I think it's a very competent team. It, it's it's a couple of things. Uh, 
something that Joe promised. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's worthwhile. I remember President Clinton said something to me years ago. He said, you know, in the modern era, uh, people need to get used to the fact that when, when people campaign for the presidency and you win the presidency, you try and do the things you promised to do in a campaign. That wasn't always the case, but it is in the modern era. So there's no surprises here. I mean, people turn on and go, right. I didn't think Joe Biden would ever do that. No, he campaigned on that. I mean, so he talked about right. So there's a lot of diversity, which is so great to see. I mean, it really is. Um, uh, I've been reading a book recently that I'd recommend to people called Cast, C-A-S-T-E. Yes, yeah, great book. It really is. For, for those of us, even who thought we understood the civil rights movement and have considered ourselves progressive and, and certainly forward-leaning when it came to racism in this country, this book is an eye-opener in many ways, even for those of us who I think felt good about where we were on the issues. Uh, but you need to understand how deeply the wounds we created in this country. Uh, and that book contributes significantly. So I think Joe is making a significant contribution. No other administration ever again, ever again, will be able to come into power in this country, Democrat or Republican, and not try to model the team they build around them different than what Joe Biden has done. Now, they may have obviously different choices uh, here, but you don't want to ever again in this country have an administration of a bunch of old, graying white men uh, here and not include gender changes, race changes, ethnicity, and backgrounds. So I applaud him immensely. If he didn't do anything else, he's made a huge change already in our country. And But they're competent people. I mean, you, you can't just... Right, not they a are. Photo op you're trying to engage in here. But, but what, what competency do they bring to the table? And you've mentioned a few already uh, that are going to do that. And the fact that we've got a vice president in Kamala Harris, a woman, uh, a person of, of, of mixed race uh, and ethnicity, uh, is a great message. My, my two teenage daughters, they're over the moon about this. Uh, here. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's going on all across the country, and it's going around the world. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how calls I get from friends, I'm sure others have had from around the globe, of people who have great hope in what Joe Biden is doing by putting a competent team that reflects who we are as a people together. And so I'm very optimistic about his choices. Great, great. Well, we could go uh, all day, but let's, let's leave it there. Thank you very much, Senator, for joining us. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning into another episode of HPS Insights. Um, I'm your host, Brian DeAndres. You can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies' work in our podcast at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insight. Thanks again, Senator, for joining us. And we wish everyone a, a safe and uh, joyous inauguration. Week. Thank you, Brian. I'm going to be at that inauguration. I'm looking forward to it. So thank Great. you. And I appreciate it very much. And thank Nicole as well. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight and visit us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com.